Welcome. My name is Josh, and I am guiding teacher of Dharma Punks New York. And just a couple of announcements for your consideration. The large gathering at Garrison Institute on the Pathways of Ego Transcendence. And that will be from August 31st till September 4th. And we have kept the prices absolutely as low as we possibly can so that people will be able to afford, hopefully, the uh, four-day retreat. It's in a really beautiful place uh, in upstate New York, easy to get to because it's within walking distance of the Metro North train. So if you're around New York and you want to go on a four-day retreat up in the beautiful uh, foothills of the Catskills, that would be a place to join and uh, great food there too. So the link's on the chat. And uh, also the information's on the website. Uh, Kathy, every morning, does the daily pause at 8 and uh, Monday through Friday for half an hour. So hopefully you'll join for that. So if you would like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, everything I do is entirely by donation, the counseling and the teaching. I don't charge for anything I do. And that's out of the 2,500-year-old Buddhist tradition. So the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. And the PayPal is on the Dharma Punks NYC website. And then there's a Patreon for those of you who would like to join there. And uh, so thank you for your support. Tonight, fawning. Fawning. What is fawning? We'll see that it's related to the freeze response. Uh, it's a compulsive or people-pleasing or accommodating others. And it may seem like fawning is a choice that people make, that it's something that individuals decide to do. But if it's routine or if its underpinnings are early environmental deficits from childhood, it's actually an automatic survival reaction to the anticipation, anticipation of interpersonal conflict or rejection or the vulnerability to other people's uh, judgments. Fawning is a response to threat by becoming more appealing to the threat itself. So generally, because we're social species, the threat is someone else that we're engaged with in some kind of interaction. And so when we fawn, we surrender our needs, our boundaries, we fail to speak up, we can become either tongue-tied or more likely we'll be very appeasing, we'll become a compliant, we'll uh, wind up agreeing to things or validating ideas that we don't actually authentically agree with. And what's important to know is that people will very often fawn in entirely safe situations that are markedly different from maybe the early uh, traumas of childhood. 
we will uh it's so because it's so automatic it's reflexive it's ingrained it's governed by very old fast circuits of the brain that are pre-conscious it's not a response that's particularly discerning to what we can to situations now where we could actually set boundaries or actually state our needs so to understand the fawning response it's my firm belief that we have to know a little bit about our nervous systems because um the setting of the human nervous system determines not only our behavior but it determines when we what type of automatic behaviors we engage with so our autonomic nervous system's job is to respond to either signs of safety or danger or life-threatening cues from the world around us and our nervous system has three basic settings and it's important that we all know what our nervous system's basic settings are so the oldest setting of the nervous system is the immobilization response and this is a largely ancient parasympathetic response it drops blood pressure and heart rate it deactivates cranial nerves so our facial expressions become kind of impassive or dull our eyelids droop our facial expressions dwindle we become less attentive to other people's voices and our social engagement with others starts to shut down um and it allows the positives about immobilization is that it allows for healing if we're injured or sick uh, it's part of the grieving process that allows us to process losses but of course it's the most detrimental for social interactions and for staying connected with other people immobilization is associated with depression and dissociation so it's a classic trauma response to become immobilized when we're back or we're in any situation that reminds us of a trauma from our past the second setting is the opposite of immobilization it's mobilization and this isn't parasympathetic it actually uses a different nervous system the sympathetic nervous system which is more the parasympathetic is uses the vagal nerve the sympathetic uses your spinal nerves to activate your limbs and because it doesn't use the vagal nerve it shuts down digestion it raises heart rate and heartbeats and it creates a jumpy attention we become hyper vigilant we become prone to fight or flight impulses so this is great if you're out hunting and gathering or you're playing a sport or you're riding on a, a roller coaster or you're in a some you're watching a, a horror movie but to stay in sympathetic when you're supposed to be engaged with others will make you um very reactive very defensive very you'll push away people you'll you'll feel very attacked even when you're not you'll be constantly looking for threat cues so again just like immobilization mobilization states of the nervous system are not good 
for relationships. The highest setting, the most recent modern setting of the nervous system, only is a few million years old, is probably is the social engage, what we call homeostasis, where we're kind of floating between parasympathetic and light sympathetic, where we it's like we have both the gas and the brakes available, but we're not stomping on the brakes and in immobilization, nor are we revving the gas and speeding and in like hypervigilant, worried mobilization, freak out state, panic state. We're in between. We're just driving down the road. And this uses the modern vagal nervous system which uh, allows us to express our feelings and emotions on our face. And that's why we are a social species. And that's why we can connect and bond with others is because we were gifted with this nervous system that allows us to express all of our internal states very quickly via facial expressions, changes of tone of our voice, subtleties of our our look and so forth and because of this high setting when we're really in it we're relaxed we're capable of bonding we're curious we explore we're trusting and we're in a really healthy state and we're not defensive we can listen to others even when others are being critical so these three settings, whether we're in shutdown, freeze, dissociation, depression, or we're up in worry, panic, anxiety, or whether we're in the highest, the social engage, homeostasis, um, is set by our nervous systems. It's uh, It's actually set by very old regions of the brain, including the nervous system, the amygdala, the temporal lobe, brainstem. It's kind of what one famous neurologist, Stephen Porges, calls detection without awareness. The oldest regions of the brain well below consciousness monitor everybody around us, especially people who are important to us. And if we feel safe, it switches our nervous systems back into... Uh, social engage, relaxed, curious, interested, disclosing, connective. But if we feel threatened by somebody's um, judging or and somebody we don't really feel that vulnerable to, it will go up into a mobilized fight, flight. We'll just want to leave, get the hell away from them, or we'll want to attack. If we're with someone that we're very vulnerable to, who's got a lot of power over us, and we notice them signaling through their facial expression, their tone of voice, judgment or criticism or uh, absolute disinterest in us. It can switch our nervous system into that immobilized state. And all throughout our lives, these old regions of the brain, without our being aware of it, are switching our nervous systems <laughs> up and down to anxious, back to regulated, down to shut down, depressed, up back to regulated, or even back to... Sometimes if we stay in anxious for too long, we collapse into a kind of shutdown state. So 
everybody agrees now, all clinical psychology is in agreement that the more we spend our childhoods with reliable, emotionally validating figures, our nervous systems learn to stay regulated. And we learned how to uh, stay longer without jumpiness into switching our nervous systems. Our old regions of our brain learn to relax, connect, even during times where we weren't unsure what other people were thinking. But if we experienced early neglect or emotionally extremely anxious or angry or abusive parents, then our amygdalas and these ancient regions like the HBA axis of the brain become very hyperactive and they don't allow us to stay regulated for very long. They're constantly inflating even an inscrutable look from people around us as a threat. And we'll jump into either hypervigilance and, and defensive reactivity or we'll dissociate, we'll shut down, or we'll kind of uh, freeze. And one of the possible outcomes, if we feel powerful enough to protect ourselves while we see someone like their facial expressions conveying judgment or contempt, we'll go into the fight-flight response. But if we feel powerless or vulnerable, we need the other person to like us for some reason, then as adults, we might fall into a state called as fawning. Fawning is a lighter version of the freeze response, and it's not fight-flight at all. It's closer to freezing. It's a kind of, uh, we're not able to act. We're just being very, very compliant, no matter what. What we'll do is we'll establish safety by merging with another person's expectations to diffuse the situation, to get them to convey facial expressions that they like us again, to get them to say things that are affirming of us. It's what we do when our nervous systems feel vulnerable to the judgments of other people, and we really need to maintain somebody's um, uh somebody's well wishes, for instance, during a job interview that you really need, or if you're interacting with a supervisor, or if you're in a romantic relationship for a long time and your partner has a tendency to become triggered so, and you care about their how they feel about you, over time, fawning behaviors become compulsive again, driven entirely by unconscious processes. So while we see others who are, when they're fawning, and we might say, oh, that person's a people pleaser, they're being a doormat, they're uh, kissing ass, and it makes it appear, it can appear to others like the individual is choosing to be uh, sycophantish or accommodating, but it's not a choice, it's not manipulative. Even though when we see other people who at work are always invariably immediately agreeing with people in power or with people who have some authority, uh, it can appear as if they're manipulating 
that they're manipulative, that they're inauthentic. But when people are in a fawning state due to early childhood abandonments or neglect or difficult parenting or whatever, uh, poverty, they're they're not it's not manipulative it's automatic and they're relinquishing their voice and their agency and in fact i think in my life and in everybody's life i know and certainly pretty much everyone who i've ever worked with in counseling there's been a time where i've set every intention to set a boundary and have been and just really geared up to go right into my boss or my um this friend who's been aggressive and and harsh or whatever i've set every intention and then you go in <laughs> and you're faced with the person who triggers the fawning response and before we know it we back out we change the subject we don't speak up for ourselves we don't set the boundary and then you know we feel kind of ashamed afterwards and we might even have told people today i'm going to have the conversation <laughs> and then we haven't and so there's this sense of oh my god i what's the matter with me as if we're weak-willed but we're not weak-willed it's just an automatic response to the presence of a unconscious threat and you know, sometimes then people, you know, have even told me in counseling that they've actually set a boundary at work that they talked about. And then a few months later, they'll acknowledge that they didn't. So they were actually, even though they acknowledge that I'm a friendly figure that doesn't generally trigger any feeling of unsafety, but even with me, they're fawning. Even with me, they're, they're, they're being immediately accommodating and acting as if they've they've literally set that boundary. The term fawning was first coined by a therapist named Pete Walker in a paper called or book called Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving. I just want to note that fawning is not only a response to trauma. It can be a response to any uh early life relationships where we felt vulnerable to our caregiver shifts of mood and affect we didn't necessarily have to experience any life-threatening or extremely traumatic simply losing the caregiver's attention for a child can feel actually like a trauma um it didn't even start with with Pete Walker, though. That would be incorrect because the great D.W. Winnicott came up with a, an idea called the false self many, 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 many years before Walker. And he noted that children have automatic defensive facades where they present inauthentic emotions to their caregivers to get their caregivers to treat them well. So the idea that people are people-pleasing, placating, appeasing, accommodating, and abandon themselves uh, has been known pretty much ever since early attachment theory with the work of Bowlby in the early, the late 50s and early 60s. When we're fawning, we're noted for our inability to state our needs, 
to set boundaries, it creates a loss of a sense of self. Um, when we're fawning, we don't have any awareness of our body or our feelings. We're completely enmeshed with another person's needs or focusing entirely on what their demeanor is. So we're not aware of our internal states. That creates a kind of what's called derealization, where it can feel like we're in a fog. It can feel like we're not even in our own bodies. It can feel like the experience is less and less real. Like we're watching our actions, hearing ourselves speak, but we're not even in charge of that. It's a fog state at times. And loss of attention can be perceived as a threat. Uh, if it's we've constantly lost attention in childhood from caregivers, then in adult life, if we're dating someone or meeting a friend and we start to see them drift away, that can trigger um, the fawn response when uh and we'll go out of our way so many people i know of anxious attachment when they're in early dating they'll prematurely have sex with someone they've just met as a way to maintain attention because they're terrified of losing the other person's attention or positive regard so uh it, the accommodating behaviors can also lead to people consuming drugs that they wouldn't take. I know that was a lot of my case with uh, uh, growing up with older guys. I would, because I had a fawning response from my own father's violence uh, with men, I would sometimes just consume everything to prove I was cool. You know, any drug that people put in front of me. The symptoms, other symptoms of fawning, by the way, will, if we're feeling invariably stretched thin, um, we always feel we have too much. It's because sometimes where you only feel safe when we're seen as agreeable and we never say, I'm sorry, I can't help out right now. I'm too stretched. So when people are just completely stretched thin, it's always worth asking, okay, is there a habitual compliance, a compulsive compliance that I have in my personality where I just can't say no when people ask me to or tell me they need something? When people are uh, habitually ingrained uh, fawners, they overshare with strangers because they've held in their true emotions for so long then they'll meet someone for the first time, maybe on a, you know, they'll take a bus ride and they'll start bending the ear of the person in the seat next to them or on an airplane ride because they've held in their true emotions for so long. Um, and of course, one of the telltale signs is acting as if we don't have any preferences or needs when we do. So a classic example is you're with a group of friends and they say, hey, let's go out to a movie. Who wants to see the latest, you know, idiotic blockbuster Marvel film? And 
everybody, you know, the person who seems the leader of the group, the most influential says, I do. And then we find ourselves saying, sure, that sounds great, even though we normally rather, you know, uh, sit in a box with a pit bull than sit through another Marvel film or another, you know, one of those idiotic blockbuster films. So we act as if we don't care when we really do, or we act as if we're in agreement when we're actually not in agreement. You wind up, we wind up eating food that we don't want to eat. We wind up going to places we don't want to go. We wind up agreeing with statements, political or otherwise, that we don't agree with. And suppressed beneath all of this fawning tendencies are real primary emotions that are far more adaptive than this performance, this automatic performance. For instance, very often beneath uh, fawning is frustration, impulses to push back, to set a boundary, but it's buried. Or it could be fear that we're being imperiled but again, we won't know when we're in bad situations if we're prone to fawning or even grief. It'll keep us in really damaging relationships rather than see that a relationship is unhealthy. And one of the also most uh, unfortunate parts of fawning is that it exaggerates threats. Well, it's far better to disappoint a boss or lose a job than by saying, I need to leave at a reasonable time. Uh, people will become workaholic, and that workaholism will ingrain this fear that if they lost their job, they'll never get another job, or that it's a threat to their life. The more we fawn, the more the things we're threatened by seem scarier rather than less scary. So it distorts our perceptions. And sadly, I have to say, as a, you know, a person who's been a Buddhist teacher for almost 20 years, I've seen many individuals who practice in spiritual communities, especially practitioners who will approach me or other teachers, and they're clearly seeking some kind of spiritual guide or guru and you can tell that it's a way to continue and they'll immediately enact fawning behaviors. They'll immediately start saying how great, you know, you know, how brilliant everything I've ever said was. And believe me, I'm not. And they'll act as if I've, you know, they'll, 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 project onto me these qualities I don't have. I'm an anxious New York Jew from, you know, I'm not a awakened, I'm a guy who's been practicing Buddhism for a long time and, and psychology, but I'm not some awakened character. And I'm just a, in fact, a recovering alcoholic with 29 years of sobriety, but people will come and try to uh, immediately start placating, accommodating, fawning uh, in, in the hopes of reestablishing this kind of bond where they feel safest. The Buddha noted that in a teaching called the Five Hindrances that our liberation and our peace of mind is most uh, uh, hindered or 
compromised by hatred, craving, extreme self-doubt, anxiety. But the fifth hindrance he needed, what, or the, another hindrance was what's called tinamida. Tina being laziness, but mida is the ancient Pali word for half-hearted actions where we lose all awareness of what's true for us and not true for us, what's authentic, what's inauthentic, where our minds lose focus, we fail to speak up for ourselves, and we go along with everything. So I think it's pretty clear to me that one of the main hindrances the Buddha was pointing to was fawning, because he also mentions fight flight in these hindrances. So I'm pretty sure that that's fawning. In Buddhism, um, Tinamita is counteracted with what's called Vriya, or in energizing the body, you know, breathing in, uh, creating a body that feels strong. And I've found that somatic practices that enliven the body actually have helped numerous clients who normally fawn in relationships actually help change the disposition because they no longer fawn. It actually allows them to feel like they're in a body that's not vulnerable. So one of the exercises that's really helpful is to like before going into a difficult conversation if you're alone, you don't want to do this in public, but if you're alone, you just shadow box, you know, pretend you're punching or make the body really big by stretching your arms as wide as you can in all different directions so that we're making the body don't feel small or making it feel very large. Or we might push gently, consistently against an immovable object like a wall. So we're literally getting the body into a state where it's not small and contracted and prone to freeze. We're getting the body into a state of uh, mobilization. And it's a very healthy thing. Even sometimes just tapping the body, you know, activating the nerves, you know, making yourself feel more alive, awake can help. A priming is a psychological strategy that's extremely effective with people I've worked with who are prone to fawning. Priming is visualizing figures who are confident, who spoke up, who weren't intimidated. So uh, for me, when I was growing up, the figure I would visualize was James Baldwin, who was a Black American, openly gay very progressive uh, writer who was brilliant. And I visualized him because to me, he represented everything that was completely confident and not refused to back down. And before I go into any conversation with, I try to visualize him and it very often would work where situations where in the past I had immediately become compliant or shut down if I really primed myself with James Baldwin, I could literally go in and ask, tell my boss that I needed something or somebody who, uh, that I I was nervous about. I could have those conversations. Another figure I've used in my life is the rapper Chuck D of public image, public 
enemy, public enemy, not public image is a t- totally different public enemy. And Chuck D's great rapper and kind of like a, a real hero. So um, priming your mind, it could be holding, putting by your computer or looking at an image of, I don't know, some figure that really represents confidence and courage. Orienting to safety cues, pulling attention away from monitoring the person that triggers us. So if you go in a room and there's one person who's triggers the fawn response, you know, somebody who's a bully or emotionally difficult or someone you've had history with who you at times is a little bit borderline or aggressive, don't focus your attention on them. Focus on other people. Focus on people who are friendly. Look out the window at trees. Look at doorways to the room. Just don't allow your attention to focus on the one person that's likely to trigger the fawning. This is, it might sound obvious, but so many of us are cingulates which govern our attention will naturally go to the threat to the person we consider to be difficult, but we can override it. The good news is that your left singular can override your right and say, now I'm not going to look at that person because that's the one who always triggers the fawning response. So we just look away. We look at someone else. We uh, look out the window. We look above their heads, but we don't allow ourselves to just linger on the person. And Lastly, I also, in my meditation practice with, and also with clients and people I've worked with, I very often will use meditation as a way to practice relaxing and keeping the body in a safety state when we visualize an individual who triggers bonding. So we're actually going to be doing that in our meditation tonight. We're going to be practicing resetting our nervous system because so long as our nervous system, we're monitoring it by knowing how we're breathing, knowing the state of the body, and we're using our tools to keep our body in a safety setting of, you know, social engage, we won't automatically go into that fawn response. So that's tonight's talk. I hope that something in tonight's talk was of value. Uh, and worth your listening. And right now we're going to put the tools I've mentioned in to practice in a meditation. So what I'd like to uh, suggest is turn off your video feed for the while so that you don't have to worry about being seen. You can just click stop video or go off the camera so that you don't have to be seen. And find a really comfortable place where you can close your eyes and just relax. And uh, because I have to be seen on camera. (laughs) I'm a Buddhist teacher. I can't just go off and sit in a corner. I've got to lead. But if I was anyone else, I would immediately just, you know, go off camera while I meditate and then come back on, please, when the meditation's over so we can do the question uh, or, you know, connection part of the gathering. So when you're ready, when you found a really good seated position uh, or you found a comfortable chair, uh, 
you might even want to lie down on a yoga mat. Uh, the only request is to not fall asleep. But get yourself as comfortable as you can without falling asleep, and then bring your attention as you close your eyes into an area of your body that feels pretty comfortable. You don't, even though your attention might immediately go to the part of the body that feels most uncomfortable, like a pain or uh, something that feels tight, for the moment before you pay attention to what feels uncomfortable, find an area that you can relax and feel good paying attention to. So I'll either use the palm of my hands or my eyes, or if my belly feels relaxed and soft, which it does now, I'll just pay attention to that. And then all we're going to do for uh, a moment is, or for a little while, I should say, is we're going to follow the Buddha's early instructions on meditating. And we're just going to, Try to breathe in a way that uh, allows the body to relax. So what that means is generally find a rhythm that's really suitable for the body to release its held tense uh, muscles. A breath that really is helpful is one where your out breath is at least as long as your in breath. So it can be helpful to count the length of the in breath and then make sure that your out breath is as long as the in breath. So if you count to four on the in, I try to count to six on the out breath because that'll really relax you pretty quickly. And if there's any area in your body that feels uncomfortable, eventually you can roam over to it and breathe into that area and on the out-breath soften. So... Um, you can even use breathing not only just to relax the body in general, but also to reduce like tension and tightness in like the shoulders or the lower back or the neck. So let's just practice a little while and quiet. And if your thoughts start to lure you away, just note that. Don't get frustrated. You have to come back to your body and breath a hundred times, that's fine. You'll be, you'll experience a little liberation a hundred times in your meditation.
And if you can, breathe in a way that feels now even possible of cultivating a sense of positive emotion or a real sense of safety and ease. So it's not just the body, but you're breathing in a way that cultivates ease in your mind, allows your attention to settle. And that might be breathing slightly softer. It might be while you breathe, allowing a, a unforced half smile. It might be while you breathe, also visualize a place where you feel really safe or especially visualize someone that you really admire and feel comfortable with, so that you're using your breath and your meditation not just to relax your body, but now the body and your mind, cultivating a kind of go-for state of real relaxed ease and uh, comfort or safety and just experiment like what kind of way do I sit and what's the best rhythm of the breath for me to feel comfortable or maybe not even paying so much attention to the breath, but just the sounds around me that are soft. Yeah, try to cultivate serenity.
So at this time, if you like, you can continue with whatever practice, especially if it's been cultivating great ease and you want to continue. But if you'd like, you can also, in your mind, if you're capable of visualizing people and situations, visualize a situation with an individual in your life that you find yourself becoming overly accommodating, a figure with whom you habitually try to manage their or you don't set boundaries or you can't say no to or it feels difficult to to just um, speak up for yourself or in the aftermath of engaging with this individual we always feel somehow like we accommodated or abandon ourselves and if you can just visualize this person or this situation or bring to mind just a recent event and just know what that event was where you felt yourself walking on eggshells and immediately trying to manage the other person's emotional state, then first, while you hold the triggering image in your mind, see if you can keep breathing in the way that cultivated ease at the beginning of the meditation. So practice softening your belly and just breathing out really slow as you visualize a scenario where in the past we've found ourselves in a kind of classic fawn response. Relax. Visualize in this scenario places you could orient your attention to that, you know, a window or another person who might be there who's we feel far more secure with, or a doorway, a ceiling fan, or something that we can look at that doesn't activate that. reflexive response to accommodate, to be likable. Maybe a family setting or a job interview or a date or a situation with a difficult relative where we always find ourselves backing down and just, or even with a friend who we feel slightly bullied by While you visualize this scenario, just 
See if you can breathe out slowly. Keep your belly soft. Keep your body big. Shoulders wide. The back strong, upright. You can even stretch out your arms if you want or just keep them by your side, but cultivate a body that doesn't feel inclined to yield quite so easily. You can even imagine that some figure individual in your life who you associate with being very strong and confident and outspoken, someone who doesn't accommodate people needlessly, and visualize them present as well. Or perhaps another strategy I like is when we visualize the person who triggers this appeasing response, see if you can shrink them ever smaller so they don't appear quite as big or as close to you, make them become smaller and a little more distant so you could imagine yourself while this figure is present no longer in any way imposing and then practice in your mind saying whatever boundary you'd like to set saying no saying i can't do this right now just use the meditation as a practice a rehearsal So at this point, I'm going to bring the meditation to a close. And so really take your time and as slowly as you can, open your eyes, but try to keep your body breathing in the way that was relaxing during the meditation and 
keep your belly soft and try to bring with you any ease that you cultivated in your practice. Yeah. 